Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Australia remains largely a quarry nation, well endowed with resources um, like iron ore and coal. But while it's brought billions in export income to governments and companies, um, these riches are sometimes seen also as a curse. And this is something that Judy Brett believes, um, and she's outlined why in a beautifully written trip into Australian economic history. Her quarterly essay is titled The Coal Curse, Resources, Climate and Australia's Future. And um, Judy, it's really great to have you on 3RRR. Welcome. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. And so, yes, we're rich in coal and other resources, and these remain really important to Australia's exports. But um, we're also seeing a flip side emerge, of course, um, issues with Aboriginal heritage, which have been really in focus recently. And now we're also seeing the global economy decarbonising in earnest. Um, why... Are you looking now at uh, coal as also being a curse for Australia's economy? Well, look, the big answer to that is climate change. You know, that our, our minerals, we export iron ore, gold, increasingly lithium, things like this, which, and then we also export coal and um, LNG, liquid natural gas. And it's the fossil fuel folk, it's the fossil fuel exports that are the problem for climate change. And so it was thinking about that at the end of last year, which is why um, I wrote this essay. Um, but in writing it, you know, circumstances change both with the, with the bushfires and then with the global pandemic to actually give it really added relevance, particularly um, as it made people aware, like one of the the themes or one of the, of, of the backstory of our economic history that I tell is the fact that our manufacturing sector, which was once about, you know, 30% of, of, our, of our GDP, is like, it now employs less than 7% of our workforce. So, and people are now really aware of that with the pandemic, which, put, which really revealed how little manufacturing capacity we had here and the problem with, you know, supply lines for us. And Judith, you're a historian and write very eloquently in this essay about why understanding Australia's history is important for grappling with this political, what's become a political problem, I suppose, of addressing climate change. And one part of that story um, that you sort of just alluded to is, is Australia's quite peculiar development as a nation from kind of low productivity agriculture to having an economy that relies largely on resource extraction as a major export industry. We didn't become kind of a, a major manufacturing power or haven't continued our manufacturing sector in, in the way that some other nations have that followed a similar uh, rise in, in general wealth and prosperity. Why is that? Well, it, look, it's because the way we developed our manufacturing, manufacturing was developed in Australia um, during the 20th century and it particularly got a big boost after the Second World War to supply the domestic market. It was manufacturing to replace imports and the manufacturing was protected by tariffs. It wasn't manufacturing for export. So what happened was that when in the 1980s um, the Labor government, supported by the coalition, decided, you know, said about dismantling the tariff walls, the aim was to, to make our manufacturing sector 
more comp- more globally competitive to make it export oriented but and that worked for a little while at around you know the year 2000 we started to have elaborately transform manufacturers that is think you know things that require quite a lot of capital but also highly skilled labor started to make a contribution to our exports for example we started exporting some cars um, but as china became if you like the 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 world center of manufacturing that all tanked and so now we're in a situation where fewer than about 7%, less than 7% of our workforce is in manufacturing, and a lot of that is just making food, you know, biscuits and things like that. It's not... There's actually fewer than 100,000 skilled metal workers now still working in Australia, according to the, the labour statistics on, on the ABS website. So it was the fact that we had... We have a disconnect between the industries which earn our export income and where we get our jobs. You know, that mining, yes, it's very important for earning our export income, but it doesn't employ very many of us. It's not a... a, There's fewer than... around. It's around 2% of the workforce is employed in mining. And um, it's, a, it's a funny day for you to be talking about manufacturing biscuits because I can just think of um, Boris Johnson with a packet of Tim Tams now. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> many people that were paying attention in the 90s would remember Paul Keating warning us about us becoming a b- banana republic. And so I, I suppose many would be forgiven for thinking that we made a shift at that time, but it hasn't um, stuck, as you outlined. Why is that? Why haven't we been able to kind of shift our industrial policies, you think? Well, partly because manufacture, China rose as a manufacturing superpower and it, it you know, the global winds of competition, which, which Keating um, and John Button, we, they opened our manufacturing sector to, when once China rose, it blew it away and uh, blew a lot of our manufacturing capacity away. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we, we stayed being wealthy because as China developed as a, as a manufacturing and industrial, you know, as China industrialised, it increased its demand for our minerals. So, you know, in a way we stayed being prosperous and our political elites could get on with just fighting the cultural wars and not, you know, there wasn't really much thinking about the, yeah, structure, uh, yeah. the underlying structure of the economy, it seems to me, for the last couple of Decades. Yeah, that's interesting, um, that point, because, um, I mean, other countries also have seen China rise as a manufacturing superpower but have been able to diversify. Well, they haven't, they haven't. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, the some of the European countries like, like Sweden and Germany, they already had very strong manufacturing sectors. Our problem was our manufacturing sector was only was not that strong. Because it had been sheltered from global competition for so long, it it was it was weak, um, and so when it, it was it was starting to strengthen, but in some ways it was sort of too late to the game. The the fault here lies really not so much with the mining with you know with minerals and the mining industry, but with our political elites leaving the tariffs in place for so long. Speaking, they really should have started to be dismantled in the 1960s. Sorry to jump in, Judith, but just to remind listeners, we're speaking with Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, Judith Brett, all about her brand-new quarterly essay, The Coal Curse, Resources, Climate and Australia's Future. And you mentioned um, the culture wars just in passing there, Judith, and, and part of your piece does kind of deal with this transition from, um, you know, people become transitioning from cultural warriors to climate warriors as the kind of climate wars, I suppose, to 
took hold in this country. And and the idea or, or the kind of false dichotomy that's been presented by, you know, some politicians and, and, and some media outlets as well around the kind of supposed trade-off between jobs and environmental protection around um, issues such as, you know, the Adani mine, for example, has kind of really sort of taken hold in the national consciousness. And given that the mining sector doesn't, as you alluded to, employ, you know, all that many people really, how can we understand the way in which, um, you know, this has become such a sticking point for meaningful climate action and energy transition? Well, I think if we talk about, say, Queensland, uh, it's like the resource industry became identified with Queensland's regional, with regional Queensland's ideas of their prosperity, because it, as I said, it doesn't employ that many people. Um, but I think in the 2019 election, it was successfully weaponised um, in, into somehow being, you know, Queensland doesn't want to be being told by the rest of you how we should be going about things. Um, so, and I think that the... Um, Convoy, the anti-Adani convoy that Bob Brown and others led up there was a major political mistake. It just sort of exacerbated this sense of regionalism. But the other part of this story that um, that I put is that the National Party in Queensland have really turned themselves into the party of, of coal because what the National Party depends on to win seats is geographically concentrated support. As it's losing... You know, as agricultural areas decline, I think it's been looking at some of these coal mining areas as ways of actually replacing their 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 sort of geographically concentrated electoral base from agriculture into into coal. One of the things I find really extraordinary is the way the National Party is backing gas, which is destroying good agricultural land. Yeah, it's a really fascinating case, isn't it? Because particularly given the National Party doesn't, uh, you know, have a whole lot of success, at least proportionally in terms of the number of people voting for them at elections, yet they still hold a disproportionate number of seats um, due to the kind of distribution of um, of people, you know, voting in regional seats and so on and their partnership with the Liberal Party. That's right. I mean, they, they they're, in terms of the National First Party First, you know, first preference vote. Fewer people vote for the National Party, you know, plus the National Party section of the Queensland LNP than vote Green. But their vote is geographically concentrated, which means they can win seats. Um, and so I think that partly explains the sort of the way in which in Queensland the, the, the Nationals have pivoted towards towards coal mining regions and, and partly also because of the climate wars that supporting coal can become like an, a marker of being a conservative, of being, you know, anti-progressive and so they were able to sort of capitalise or use that, use that as leverage to expand their base amongst regional voters. It's fascinating, isn't it? And I mean, you remind us, um, Judy, that Australia is the largest exporter of fossil fuels um, behind Russia and Saudi Arabia. And I suppose many are hoping in the kind of coronavirus crisis that there might be an opportunity to shift gears um, and diversify our economy. Um, We did hear uh, last week, uh, the federal government start to talk more about jobs and this time looking at honing our higher education institutions to um, deliver uh, on this. Um, what, I mean, are you seeing a shift in the right direction in Australia with regards to how we might um, start to shift our economy? 
Well, look, I think at the moment there's, there's, there's competing voices. There's an increasingly strong argument and push for expanded investment in renewables. The argument that Ross Garno put in superpower and which has been taken up by others is that Australia has an opportunity because of our abundant sunshine and wind to become, to export, if you like, renewable energy. Because, you know, and this is an argument not just that this is good for climate change, which, you know, is seems to me to be, anyway, a really urgent and overriding argument, but it's also an argument that if the world turns against coal, we've got stranded assets, what are we going to replace it with? So it's an argument that this is something we can, this is a, an industry that we could develop which will replace um, our reliance on fossil fuels, but we will still be an energy exporter. So in that sense, I think it's, it's a really brilliant strategy, and you're getting a lot more voices supporting that. On the other side, you have the federal government arguing that wanting to push gas as a transitional plan or as a, as a, you know, as a transitional energy source, um, at least as a, you know, it's good that they say we need to transition, but it's still a fossil fuel and also it's extremely destructive of agricultural land and of the environment. And I find it extraordinary that, um, that, that the government... The coalition government um, is pushing something, and, and as are the state governments, which is actually destroying good agricultural land. Australia is not that rich in good agricultural land. And what's interesting too about the the vision put forward by Ross Garno in his book is the um, kind of you know economic role that can play, particularly given we're going through a global pandemic and, and facing a recession, and you know really requires us to to look towards ways of rebuilding the economy that aren't necessarily um, reliant on um, aging technologies that that are kind of going out of vogue around the world. But it, it's interesting too that you began writing this piece during the bushfires, and it felt like um, you know that was going to be the biggest story of the year and and seemed like it could have been a bit of a catalyst in some ways for, um, you know, getting more momentum behind action on climate change, given the way that we're faced with the real reality of the climate crisis. Now, a few months later, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Do you feel like the current circumstances uh, gives us more hope of of starting to take these issues more seriously and build some more more momentum in the right direction? Look, I think one of the things the pandemic's done is it's made Australian, the Australian public generally realise how little manufacturing capacity we have and how vulnerable that makes us. Um, so I think it's made people, you know, just a bit more aware of the structure of our, of our economy. On the other hand, it has, you know, if we look at the COVID commission that Scott Morrison appointed, which has got, you know, two people with strong links to the gas industry on it, nobody from services, um, and services is what actually is where most of us are employed. The other problem is that it'll just make some people, you know, some parts of of the political class sort of just bunker down on what they already know and just do more of what they already know. And we're seeing a little bit of that with the move towards, you know, dismantling the green tape that they're always complaining about, as if, you know, with that thing that environment and economy and, and the economy is somehow opposites and you can't, you know, more more concern with the environment means an economic cost. You know, we're still seeing a bit of that old set of thinking, a bit of... And, and one of the things that's always that struck me in looking at 
history generally, I mean, if you look back at the early 60s, is that politicians are often sort of... They're, they somehow represent, always seem to represent older ways of thinking. It's not where we get our innovative drive in, mm. in our society. That seems to me, you know, politics is often a lag, and I th- think we're seeing that at the moment. You know, we see the, the coalition just looking to mining, and then they're talking about manufacturing, which, you know, is now really very weak. And they're not... There's a little bit of talk about renewables, but not as much, I think, as as there needs to be. And many people talk, and we're almost out of time, Judy, but many people talk about, um, I suppose, we'll look to military spending as a way of, of generating innovation. And I wonder, I mean, you mentioned in your um, quarterly essay that Australia is spending on things like submarines, but mostly that's happening offshore and the component components that are set to be um, contributed here in Australia that, you know, it's, it's difficult to find the skill set. I mean, is that is that a pathway, you think, or is that really kind of by the by? No, I mean, look, I think the point I was trying to make there is that when our car industry went, I mean, we've just, we don't, we don't have um, a strong base of industrial skills, and that was in a way revealed by by the the arguments around around the submarines and um, the difficulties that the the French company that's managing that was having in finding firms in Australia, which were of a scale that could contribute to such a large project. Um, and so in a way it was just another piece of evidence about how far we've slipped in our manufacturing capacity in the past couple of decades. Well, thank you so much for being on Triple R, um, Judy, and, and um, it's a recommended read from us here at 3 R. Thank you very much for having me. And, and Judith Brett, uh, she is the author of the latest quarterly essay. It's called The Coal Curse, Resources, Climate and Australia's Future. And it's really rich in data and interesting uh, economic history lesson there if, you, if you're looking for that. And I suppose many people have been concerned around our manufacturing capacity and it kind of lays out evidence for why um, you might be so... You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And we're starting to get glimpses of what sort of government response we're likely to get coming out of the pandemic. And it kind of could be austerity or maybe it's economic stimulus. It's hard to kind of piece it together at this moment in time. And so we've invited independent journalist Michael West to join us. He's been having a look at um, the government's approach to economic management and he's on the phone. And it's great to have you there, Michael. Good to be on the show, Carly. And of course, we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to health concerns. Um, but with policies like home builder and university funding overhauls, and also changes to childcare, we're getting some signals from the federal government. How are you interpreting them? Well, it depends who you speak to, really. And I did a piece on what they call MMT this morning, which is modern monetary theory, which basically, at at one extreme, people say you can just basically issue our own Australian currency. We can just print money. You know, we can just create new money and hand it around. Uh, That's an extreme view of it. But at the other end of the people, the balance of budget types, which is the conventional economists and so on, it seems the truth is somewhere 
in between because the government has been literally printing money. Well, not literally as in banknotes, but it's been creating new money. It looks like they've created about $50 billion in new money since they announced this program very quietly because they don't like to say they're printing money uh, back in March at the beginning of the coronavirus when that really took off. So they are printing money. And so my contention is that this business about saying, oh, come September when JobKeeper ends and the economy is going to fall off a cliff and we're going to have to go back to austerity and two or three million Australians will end up having to, you know, walk down the road to the to, to, to pick up their job seeker rather than their job keeper, what they're calling the September cliff. Uh, my contention is that there's better ways to manage the economy than saying well, we're just going to have to tighten our belts. Yeah, and, and and you say um, you know the government sort of did this quietly and doesn't want to really talk about the extent to which it is um, uh, printing money or you know enacting a, a practice that essentially amounts to that. Why is it that they don't really want to talk about this? I mean, is it simply that it's kind of at odds with their traditional ideological underpinnings? I think that's part of it. I mean, the issue is the, the Reserve Bank itself just put out a video, so you can pick, see it on the Reserve Bank's Twitter feed basically making it very clear we are not printing money but it's a deceptive uh, video because they're not literally printing dollar bills mm. or ten dollar bills they're, they're they're actually crediting the accounts of the major banks now this is a furtive this is a secretive process and and what what happens effectively they call it all around the world they call it QE or quantitative easing. It's one of these silly jargon terms, which basically has nothing to do with the meaning of what they're actually doing. What it, what QE means is creating new money. So in in popular parlance, print, printing money. That's the metaphor. But they don't say it. So in the, if you read the Fin Review or the Australian business section, you might see a bit about QE, QE, you know, all with just, you know, sort of, technical language from journalists who are essentially allies of the, uh, you know, of the banking system and, and the government. Uh, so they don't like to call it creating new money. So when they put out this thing the other day saying, oh, we're not printing, in fact, yes, they're not printing new actual, you know, plastic mm. banknotes, but they are creating new money and they're sensitive about it to get to the, the guts of your question. They're sensitive about it because it doesn't really accord with their let's balance the budget ideology that, you know, that the, the, the Australian economy is like a family household. You've got to balance the budget or you might have to sell your house to the bank, you know, or you've, you're, a, you're a shopkeeper, you know, and you've got to balance the, the books in the shop or you go out of business. But it's not like that. Because the government can raise taxes or it can, it can create new money. And that's what precisely what they are doing somewhat furtively. And it's interesting, um, you highlight there this idea of yeah, QE or um, in sort of jargon terms, but then this um, tendency to kind of simplify or even dumb down the message as we talk about the challenges facing the economy. So we're kind of getting both at the same time, it seems, when it comes to trying to explain to people what actually is happening. Absolutely. Uh, there's all sorts of dual messaging going on around the place and ten, generally the main media organisations, just it's a bit of a Canberra bubble scenario and when it comes to the economy, they trot out the government line, as does the ABC more or less, 
Uh, so people just aren't getting this stuff. They're not getting the messages. They're getting it from me, people like myself on, on Twitter and so on, perhaps, or, you know, from some independents. Uh, Alan Cole is on board now, in fact. He seems to be on board what they call the MMT, you know, the, 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 the modern monetary theory bandwagon. And I wouldn't call it MMT because it's not theory. It's actual, actually practice. Mm. And, I mean, based on some of the policy announcements we've seen in, in recent times, I mean, things such as the um, increasing cost for some university courses and, I mean, the, the um, home builder scheme and that kind of thing, we're kind of seeing a, a patchwork of policies emerge that are based around some kind of economic recovery as we move through the coronavirus pandemic. Is there a narrative that you can kind of glean from that at this point in terms of what, what sorts of priorities the governments have when it comes to who's deserving of what what money for the, the bigger picture of um, kind of enhancing the, the economy's stocks overall? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I wouldn't say economic. I'd say it's political. Mm. If you look at the home builder scheme, you, who are the beneficiaries of that? It's the franking credits brigade. It's the people that, you know, it will enable people to who whose franking credits income has been bashed up by the coronavirus this year to basically, if they've got, say, $1.5 million in, in their in their self-managed super fund, they can basically get the pension by spending that on a house renovation. I mean, it, this, you know, who's got the money to do, you know, a half-million-dollar house renovation? Uh, it's, it's, that's one, that, and it's a, it's, it helps Bunnings. And if you look at the job keeper scheme, as we've um, exposed on the, on the website, the job keeper scheme is companies, big rich property development companies like Lendlease and Mervac, I think Harvey Norman, all these companies which, who didn't shut during the coronavirus and whose revenues didn't fall the requisite for 50% are scamming it. Mm. And there's so thousands of big uh, employees of big companies are getting them when the big companies could be able to pay them anyway. If you look at the airlines, I mean, Qantas is, is being subsidised. All the big end of town is picking up subsidies all over the shop. And it seems to me, uh, and then you've got casual workers and like art students who are being punished. So I think it looks like social engineering. I mean, they don't want people, you know, they think that, I mean, I'm an arts graduate myself and in the end I've ended up in small business bit by accident, but, you know, it's, uh, I think a lot of it is social engineering. It's targeted at, just like the sports rorts and the community grant schemes, it's targeted at demographics to win them votes. They know the casual workers aren't probably going to vote Liberal, uh, so they don't care about them. And Michael West is with us. He's an independent journalist and uh, has written uh, about, um, well, policy, government economic policy on, on um, his website, having a, re- reflecting on some of the um, proposals being put forward by government and decisions being made. And it's interesting you use that term social engineering because it has been, I've never seen it um, in the public realm as much as I have in the last few days. And you also mentioned franking credits there. And I wonder, um, another, another kind of um, story that we hear from government is around intergenerational debt. Um, how are you seeing that? Like, are, are the kind of of um, the the spending that we're we're doing, you know, seeing right now in the Australian economy, is that likely to be a debt burden on on the next generations, Michael? Well, I mean, you, just just for a start on this debt thing, Australia, under the present government, six years, two years ago, the present government had racked up more debt than every previous government since federation. 
So in four years, this present regime has racked up, has given Australia, added on more debt for Australians than, than every other government since Federation. Let's just, let's just look at that fact. Now, the next fact is this business of, oh, we can't, we have to balance the budget and go for, you know, we've got to go for a surplus because it's responsible management of the budget. Well, that's just ridiculous, especially right at the moment with coronavirus where we could slip into depression. If the housing market falls out, Australia's in serious trouble. Now, at the moment, it's not as bad as people were thinking, but, you know, uh, it can easily... Uh, fall again. There's no reason why it can't, or get worse rather. So I think you know, on the debts, this 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 narrative that you know, if we incurred more debt now, then our grandchildren will be paying it off. Well, you've got to you've got to wonder. Well, who will they be paying it to? Because if we you, <coughs> uh, if we issue debt in Australian currency and create new money, it will be. Australian grandchildren paying to other Australian grandchildren and owing debt to the other Australian grandchildren will just be within this economy. So it's a zero-sum game. So it's not as if we're going to be owing it offshore if we pursue um, quantitative easing here like that and, and um, create new money. In some ways, I mean, there, there are differences between um, you know the two major parties on on some of the policies that are emerging so far in terms of the um, you know university fees courses and the home builder scheme and the what the rate of the job seeker payment should be and all that sort of thing. But in some ways, your article points to um, a much broader and, and I guess more pressing issue about the way that we actually understand the way the economy works. Um, how can we kind of penetrate that line of thinking? Because we've seen the whole uh, idea of balancing the budget and, and concerns around deficit and so on really capture um, the, the narrative of, of political conversation over years gone by as a primary kind of issue that the coalition has looked to wedge Labor on. Well, the problem is both the major parties are really on the same page mm. and they all receive money from large corporations which fund them and so they pay homage to the interests of large corporations in their policies. So you've got a structural political problem there and you've got an economic creed which is pretty much discredited, you'd have to think, because over the past 70 years inequality's got worse while they've been pursuing, well, over the past 20 years, neoliberalism, you know, privatisation's good, small government, when in fact it's going the other way, it's getting bigger, obviously, but they say it's small, it's really just crony capitalism. And so this is, it hasn't pulled the people at the bottom up. The wealth has not trickled down. The numbers on inequality over long trend lines um, are going in one direction, as in the US as they are here, where we have the same system. So the system is broken. We don't know where it's going, uh, but it, it's not going to be good by the look of it. If you look what's been happening in the US lately, which is about inequity. Um, so really, the, the, the system has to change, and Labor's not as bad in terms of some of the economic narratives as, as the lips are, but it's on the same page. They're taking money from large corporations and they're governing in their interests. 
Well, it's great to have you on Triple R, Michael, and um, we're big supporters of independent media here, as we are also an independent broadcaster at Triple R. So, um, yeah, all the best with your um, journalism, and um, people can check out your, this particular article we've been discussing, but also others on your website, michaelwest.com.au, and um, we'll speak again in the future. Terrific. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Uh, that's Thanks. Michael West, uh, and he's been around a long time writing on these issues and uh, you might, if you haven't found his website already, there's um, quite a few months of reading there um, all on its own, I reckon. Triple R Hannah Driscoll is a journo with the Weekly Times and she's been keeping a focus on regional sporting codes, well, in general, but in particular during the pandemic times. And um, while some clubs are back in training, some teams are are getting together and getting, I suppose, match fit, it's still not fully clear when competitions will be back in earnest. And um, she's kind enough to be on the phone. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks for joining us at Triple R. Hi, guys. No worries. Thanks for having me. And Hannah, often AFL and netball clubs are the uh, sort of the heartbeat of many regional areas. How have they kind of been faring in your um, investigations in this area through the pandemic times? Um, It's been a a really mixed bag, um, unfortunately, so far. Um, Due to issues related to the pandemic, we've already seen quite a few uh, country football competitions country football and netball competitions make the decision to uh, cancel their premiership seasons um, due to the issues around the virus. Um, There have been uh, still quite a few though that have been holding out hope of and continue to hold out hope of getting some sort of competition underway. Um, But we've seen on the weekend, like we go back only last weekend and there was such good news that we finally had some, some dates around when full contact training could start and when competitions could start and then you fast forward only one week and and there's um, bad news on how the the pandemic numbers have been progressing and and what that means for um, crowd numbers, you know, gatherings and all that. So And now we wait to see what impact that has on on the viability of football seasons. Yeah, it's been a bit of a wake-up call, I suppose, for for many of us. But for those who do live in regional areas and, um, you know, really get get a great deal out of going to the local footy and and supporting clubs and so on, um, you know, it's it's a really significant loss to not have leagues running. What's your sense from people you've spoken to about, um, I I guess, how they're going to fare without premiership leagues happening um, towards, you know, the latter end of this year? Um, there's, it's, there's been sadness around the loss of, um, loss of football while there's, there's lots of very, very good reasons why these decisions have been made. Um, there is that sadness that it is, it is such a social hub for a lot of these, these towns. Like some of these, these towns are quite, quite small and, and getting together at the football and netball on the weekend is a big part of, um, the social fabric of, of these towns. So, um, the fact that that won't be going ahead um, in some cases this year um, is, is quite sad and it does have a flow-on effect to other areas of the town. Um, but there is still hope that, you know, there might be some sort of football get on the park this year, particularly for the junior footballers. There's a big push to try and keep junior sport or try to get junior sport underway in, in some, some shape or form. I suppose um, the parents and and, and um, guardians can sit in the car and honk their horn, maybe, and still be able to catch the ground, catch the game. 
But which, yes, yeah, where, yeah. yeah, where are they? When you think of the small towns, which ones um, have you been um, paying attention to, Hannah? Well, we um, we cover all of country football right across Victoria. So we we cover football all the way to the South Australian border, up to you know Mildura in the Sunraysia region, right across to Albury Wodonga, and then down to East Gippsland. So there's you know you get everywhere from the major the major centres of Bendigo, Ballarat, Shepparton, Albury Wodonga, um, as I said Mildura, uh, which have you know several thousand people in them. And then some of these country towns are, you know, maybe a couple hundred people, um, a couple of small businesses and, and, and the football netball club. So there is a huge spectrum of of clubs and towns that are being affected by this. And you mentioned a couple of border towns there. Um, I imagine that those leagues have had complex um, kind of rules and, and restrictions to negotiate, particularly if they're bordering a place, well, perhaps um, South Australia, where the rules are different. Mm. Well, yeah, we've already seen all of the um, all of the South Australian competitions that had clubs in both states, so you know, clubs in South Australia and clubs in Victoria, um, all of them have, have cancelled their premiership seasons. Um, and a big part of that, or part of that um, decision-making was to do with um, the differing restrictions and also the, um, the ability to travel between the states um, is obviously not possible at the moment. So how do you how do you run a, um, and try to run a football competition when um, at, at the moment, as it stands, the, the borders are closed and they're still going to be closed for, for some time yet. So, you know, yes, that has been a huge problem in South Australia um, and there's still a couple of competitions along the border that are waiting to see uh, what could happen um, and whether whether that the restrictions in the two states will enable them to get um, their football competitions up and running. And we know there have been really unique challenges in um, in country Australia with sustaining football teams and there have been mergers and, I mean, often teams have to travel huge distances to play on any given mm-hmm. week and, and that sort of thing. Uh, how How is it going in terms of sustainability? I mean, are there teams that, that perhaps, you know, won't survive this, um, you know, current situation we're in or does it feel like that once the league does happen that we'll be in a similar spot to where we were kind of at the very beginning of the year? Probably the great unknown. Mm. Like we are, you know, it, there's so much, um, you know, there's so many questions about how this is going to impact. Um, certainly, like when we spoke to one club um, in our our coverage last week, who they'd sat out a season a couple of years ago um, due to um, other other matters, um, so they knew how hard it was to, you know, to get a club back up and running after after a year off. So it's certainly something that. Um, is on people's minds, um, but there's also optimism that um, for those that have already made the decision to to call off their seasons, there is still optimism and hope that you know, even though they've sat out the year or they may be sitting out the year this year, that it will just create that extra hunger for, from players and supporters and officials to get back into it next year. Yeah, it's, um, it's a long pre-season. A, They'll come back raring to go. <laughs> well, yeah, well, let's see. We might be looking at some very, very long pre-seasons next year. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's the situation. Like, it's, it is the great unknown. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's something that we haven't haven't dealt with for on this scale for... For, um, for such a long time. So, um, 
you know, yes, that is something that has to be has to be considered, and, and work will have to be done behind the scenes to, to to try and get everything ready for next season for those that have already made that decision to step aside for 2020. Um, Hannah Hannah Driscoll's with us. She's a journalist with the Weekly Times and keeps an eye on what's happening in the regions with regards to sport, particularly AFL and netball. But I wonder if we could um, ask about other codes, um, Hannah, and test you on your on your general knowledge. Like what's happening, perhaps say with with thinking around you know cricket clubs and so forth, because often they share the same facilities, don't they? And I suppose there's kind of yeah. a round ball game as well that people <laughs> might be flicking to, less contact, etc. I mean, are these um, other sports likely to fare better do you think in regional areas um it's probably too early to say at this stage um one one development that um possibly helped um, the football side of things was that there was an agreement um struck between afl victoria and cricket victoria um uh, a couple of weeks ago that the football season would be allowed to, if it did get underway, would be allowed to push slightly into October, which is generally, you know, cricket when the cricket seasons are getting underway across across the state. Um, so that was just to allow a little bit of extra time because the, the football season has been delayed so so much up to this point that it might protect, might help get some of these competitions up and running and then cricket would resume a bit later in October than normal. Um, but um, you know, this, this situation is just developing so so quickly and, and just changing all of the time. It's, um, it's probably too hard to say at this point in time um, what what the cricket season could look like. We still don't even really know what the football season will look like. Yeah, we don't know what tomorrow <laughs> will look like, really. Um, and I mean, yeah, we've spoken about about a lot of the challenges and um, you know issues being faced by by country teams and so on. But with the restrictions being you know eased up even slightly, and community sports being able to you know hold training sessions with more people and that type of thing, I imagine from some of those clubs that you spoke to that they got a bit of a lift out of that a bit about you know being able to actually hold um, you know training sessions with up to 20 people and, and things like that? Uh, as I said, that was, it, that was good news. Like when those developments um, started happening, it did create that optimism that, you know, we would be able to get some sort of football season season up this year. But um, as, as we said, the, the developments are just, just continue to happen and uh, just got to, ta- you know, take try and take it one step at a time. But um, the big question that... that Country football really needs answered at the moment um, to make a season viable. One of the big questions is around um, letting crowds, how, how mm. big of crowds will be allowed to attend community football matches. I think that's the big question that um, people want you know, clear information on um, to make their decisions, the ones that haven't made a call yet. And we know that local businesses play a huge role in supporting um, football clubs as well. I mean, suburban football clubs and, and regional football clubs all around the country. How mm-hmm. do you see that situation? I mean, have you heard about any sponsorship being um, sort of pared back at all or any challenges in that regard for, you know, the financial stability of particular clubs? Yeah. It, uh, the financial issues were um, uh Commonly listed as, as considerations for those for leagues when they're making their decisions mm. about going ahead for the season or not, um, and that was at, at league level and at club level. Um, as we know, a lot of businesses have been affected by um, by the coronavirus shutdowns. Um, 
so and then that has a flow on effect like and flow on effect to the clubs being able to to raise to raise money in order to make um, themselves viable so um, yeah it, it certainly was a major consideration for um, you know if our business if our businesses that normally sponsor us are in a hard time um, you know how how does that flow on into into country football circles yeah and I suppose it's not the the kind of um, time to get a collective voice together and ask for grants from the government is it after the awkwardness of what happens with the with the um, the sports funding um, palaver um, that played out earlier this year as well I reckon it's pretty tricky for for many clubs to know where to turn so what I mean what now um, Hannah I mean we you know what are you doing for a football fix if you normally um, go to regional footy well, this is a bad time to mention that I'm an Essendon supporter. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've, I'm quite at a, at a loss at the moment. Um, yeah, I, I had every, I was at my weekend or so. I was going to sit down and watch the footy yesterday, and um, as we saw that, you know, that um, the AFL is. is is obviously trying to work around um, the same the same issues and, and complications. So um, it's it's just been a bizarre year. It, re- it really has. Um, yeah, if you'd said to me in in February that this is this is what we'd be dealing with, I yeah, I would have would have thought you were mad. But it's it's just um, it's such it's such an interesting period of time to be. Um, to be doing this, and it's it's it has been tough on on community football clubs and leagues, like having to um, having to make these huge decisions, um, and then also just playing playing the waiting game. It it has been um, it has been tough. Yeah, I don't often say I feel sorry for Essendon fans, but after the supplement <laughs> saga and now this and um, potential, you know, derailing of of the season, it's um yeah, it's a pretty tough time. But hopefully there will be more footy um, uh, for Essendon and for those regional clubs as well. Thanks so much for joining us today on um, on Triple R, and all the best with your reporting. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Hannah. Hannah Driscoll's a journalist with the Weekly Times, and uh, she's editor of Country Living as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.